the unknown. Mystery. Space. Have fun. Adventure. Suspense. Fantasy. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Welcome to journey number 183 of the Journey Into podcast, featuring the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Fether by Edgar Allan Poe. I am your guide on this journey, Marshall Latham, coming to you from base camp in the Treasure Valley. As promised, I'm here for the second installment of this year's Edgar Allan Poe month, As is tradition, I typically have Dave Robison uh, read a post story for us, and uh, he was willing to do so again this year. So I am so grateful to Dave Robison. I appreciate his narration. I appreciate his willingness to continue to do this. He will be joined uh, by several other uh, voice talents. There are several different characters that show up in this story, and I was going to run this story years ago. I can't even remember how long it was ago that I was going to do this story. And I had it pretty much all edited, except for a few things I was finishing up. I had all the voices added. I had most of the sound effects and music. And I lost my hard drive. And I was never able to retrieve the audio files. And I had put so much effort into it that I would, I just didn't want to go back to start over again. And so I pretty much gave up on it and put it away, figured I would do it at some other point. I decided to bring it back this year. I am not putting as much effort into it as I did last time. I did, fortunately, still had several of the audio tracks left from some of the people that voiced voices. Uh, I was also able to ask people to revoice it again. I still had the emails (laughs) from when I was sending it out. I mean, this was like six years ago or more when I was putting this together. So luckily I I still have several voices in there, Uh, but the bulk of it is still read by Dave Robison. He reads the narrator and he reads the the host of the narrator um, of this, which, which contain most of the lines, but there are several little side characters Uh, with lots of different lines and antics and whatnot. And so I thought that would be fun to put in here. So, And uh, yeah, you'll recognize some of the voices. Uh, So this is kind of a a redemption story for me (laughs) in getting this published. And it's also uh, a simplified, more simplified version of the uh, production on this. And so... Let's go ahead and and run the story, and then I can talk more specifics afterwards. So come with me, and let's journey into 19th century France, and into one of its 
mental health institutions, or as Poe himself called it, a private madhouse. The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather by Edgar Allan Poe Read by Dave Robison During the autumn of 1855, while on a tour through the extreme southern provinces of France, my route led me within a few miles of a certain Maison de Sang, or private madhouse, about which I had heard much in Paris from my medical friends. As I had never visited a place of the kind, I thought the opportunity too good to be lost, so I proposed to my traveling companion, a gentleman with whom I had made casual acquaintance a few days before, that we should turn aside for an hour or so and look through the establishment. To this he objected, pleading haste in the first place, and in the second a very usual horror at the sight of a lunatic. He begged me, however, not to let any mere courtesy towards himself interfere with the gratification of my curiosity, and said that he would ride on leisurely so that I might overtake him during the day, or, at all events, during the next. As he bade me good-bye, I bethought me that there might be some difficulty in obtaining access to the premises, and mentioned my fears on this point. He replied that, in fact, unless I had personal knowledge of the superintendent, Monsieur Mellard, or some credential in the way of a letter, a difficulty might be found to exist, as the regulations of these private madhouses were more rigid than the public hospital laws. For himself, he added, he had, some years since, made the acquaintance of Mellard, and would so far assist me as to ride up to the door and introduce me, although his feelings on the subject of lunacy would not permit of his entering the house." I thanked him, and, turning from the main road, we entered a grass-grown by-path, which, in half an hour, nearly lost itself in a dense forest clothing the base of a mountain. Through this dank and gloomy wood we rode some two miles when the Maison de Sainte came in view. It was a fantastic chateau, much dilapidated and indeed scarcely tenable through age and neglect. Its aspect inspired me with absolute dread, and— checking my horse, I half-resolved to turn back. I soon, however, grew ashamed of my weakness, and proceeded. As we rode up to the gateway, I perceived it slightly open, and the visage of a man peering through. In an instant afterward, this man came forth, accosted my companion by name, shook him cordially by the hand, and begged him to alight. It was Monsieur Mallard himself." He was a portly, fine-looking gentleman of the old school, with a polished manner and a certain air of gravity, dignity, and authority, which was very impressive. My friend, having presented me, mentioned my desire to inspect the establishment, and received Monsieur Mallard's assurance that he would show me all attention, now took leave, and I saw him no more. When he was gone, the superintendent ushered me into a small and exceedingly neat parlour, containing, among other indications of refined taste, many books, drawings, pots of flowers, and musical instruments. A cheerful fire blazed upon the hearth. At a piano, singing an aria from Bellini, sat a young and very beautiful woman, who, at my entrance, paused in her song and received me with graceful courtesy. 
Her voice was low, and her whole manner subdued. I thought, too, that I perceived the traces of sorrow in her countenance, which was excessively, although to my taste not unpleasingly, pale. She was attired in deep mourning, and excited in my bosom a feeling of mingled respect, interest, and admiration. I had heard at Paris that the institution of Monsieur Mellard was managed upon what is vulgarly termed the system of soothing, that all punishments were avoided, that even confinement was seldom resorted to, that the patients, while secretly watched, were left much apparent liberty, and that most of them were permitted to roam about the house and grounds in the ordinary apparel of persons in right mind. Keeping these impressions in view, I was cautious in what I said before the young lady, for I could not be sure that she was sane, and, in fact, there was a certain restless brilliancy about her eyes which half led me to imagine she was not. I confined my comments, therefore, to general topics, and to such as I thought would not be displeasing or exciting even to a lunatic. She replied in a perfectly rational manner to all that I said, and even her original observations were marked with the soundest good sense. But a long acquaintance with the metaphysics of mania had taught me to put no faith in such evidence of sanity, and I continued to practice, throughout the interview, the caution with which I commenced it. Presently, a smart footman in livery brought in a tray with fruit, wine, and other refreshments, of which I partook, the lady soon afterward leaving the room. As she departed, I turned my eyes in an inquiring manner toward my host. "'No,' he said, "'oh, no, a member of my family, my niece, and a most accomplished woman.' "'I beg a thousand pardons for the suspicion,' I replied. "'But, of course, you will know how to excuse me. The excellent administration of your affairs here is well understood in Paris, and I thought it just possible, you know. "'Yes, yes, say no more.' or rather it is myself who should thank you for the commendable prudence you have displayed. We seldom find so much forethought in young men, and more than once some unhappy contretemps has occurred in consequence of thoughtlessness on the part of our visitors. While my former system was in operation and my patients were permitted the privilege of roaming to and fro at will, they were often aroused to a dangerous frenzy by injudicious persons who called to inspect the house. Hence I was obligated to enforce a rigid system of exclusion, and none obtained access to the premises upon whose discretion I could not rely. "'While your former system was in operation,' I said, repeating his words, "'do I understand you then to say that the soothing system of which I have heard so much is no longer in force?' It is now, he replied, several weeks since we have concluded to renounce it for ever. Indeed, you astonish me. <sighs> we found it, sir, he said with a sigh, absolutely necessary to return to the old usages. The danger of the soothing system was at all times appalling, and its advantages have been much overrated. I believe, sir, that in this house it has been given a fair trial, if ever in any. We did everything that rational humanity could suggest. I am sorry that you could not have paid us a visit at an earlier period, that you might have judged for yourself. But I presume you are conversant with the soothing practice, with its details. 
Not altogether. What I have heard has been at third or fourth hand. I may state the system, then, in general terms, as one in which the patients were menage ou merde. We contradicted no fancies which entered the brains of the mad. On the contrary, we not only indulged but encouraged them, and many of our more permanent cures have been thus affected. There is no argument which so touches the feeble reason of the madman as the argumentum ad absurdum. We have had men, for example, who fancied themselves chickens. The cure was to insist upon the thing as a fact, to accuse the patient of stupidity in not sufficiently perceiving it to be a fact, and thus refuse him any other diet for a week than that which properly appertains to a chicken. In this manner a little corn and gravel were made to perform wonders. But was this species of acquiescence all? By no means. We put much faith in amusements of a simple kind, such as music, dancing, gymnastic exercises generally, cards, certain classes of books, and so forth. We affected to treat each individual as if for some ordinary physical disorder, and the word lunacy was never employed. A great point was to set each lunatic to guard the actions of all the others— to repose confidence in the understanding or discretion of a madman is to gain him body and soul. In this way we were enabled to dispense with an expensive body of keepers. And you had no punishments of any kind? None. And you never confined your patients? Very rarely. Now and then the malady of some individual grew to a crisis, or, taking a sudden turn of fury, we conveyed him to a secret cell, lest his disorder should affect the rest, and there kept him until we could dismiss him to his friends. For with the raging maniac we have nothing to do. He is usually removed to the public hospitals. And you have now changed all this, and you think for the better? Decidedly. The system had its disadvantages, and even its dangers. It is now, happily, exploded throughout all the Maison de Saint of France. I am very much surprised, I said, at what you tell me, for I made sure that, at this moment, no other method of treatment for mania existed in any portion of the country. You are young yet, my friend, replied my host. But the time will arrive when you will learn to judge for yourself what is going on in the world without trusting to the gossip of others. Believe nothing you hear, and only half that you see. Now, about our Maison de Saint, it is clear that some ignoramus has misled you. After dinner, however, when you have sufficiently recovered from the fatigue of your ride, I will be happy to take you over the house, and introduce you to a system which, in my opinion— and in that of everyone who has witnessed its operation, is incomparably the most effectual as yet devised. "'Your own?' I inquired. "'One of your own invention?' "'I am proud,' he replied, "'to acknowledge that it is, at least in some measure.' In this manner I conversed with Monsieur Mellard for an hour or two, during which he showed me the gardens and conservatories of the place." "'I cannot let you see my patience,' he said, just at present. "'To a sensitive mind there is always more or less of the shocking in such exhibitions, "'and I do not wish to spoil your appetite for dinner. "'We will dine. 
I can give you some veal a la Menehote with cauliflowers and a velout sauce. After that, a glass of Clos de Vougeot. Then your nerves will be sufficiently steadied. At six, dinner was announced, and my host conducted me into a large salle à manger, where a very numerous company were assembled, twenty-five or thirty in all. They were apparently people of rank, certainly of high breeding, although their habiliments, I thought, were extravagantly rich, partaking somewhat too much of the ostentatious finery of the vielle cœur. I noticed that at least two-thirds of these guests were ladies, and some of the latter were by no means accoutred in what a Parisian would consider good taste at the present day. Many females, for example, whose age could not have been less than seventy, were bedecked with a profusion of jewelry, such as rings, bracelets, and earrings, and wore their bosoms and arms shamefully bare. I observed, too, that very few of the dresses were well made, or at least that very few of them fitted the wearers. In looking about, I discovered the interesting girl to whom Monsieur Mallard had presented me in the little parlour, but my surprise was great to see her wearing a hoop and farthingale, and high-heeled shoes, and a dirty cap of Brussels lace, so much too large for her that it gave her face a ridiculously diminutive expression. When I had first seen her, she was attired, most becomingly, in deep mourning. There was an air of oddity, in short, about the dress of the whole party, which at first caused me to recur my original idea of the soothing system, and to fancy that Monsieur Maillard had been willing to deceive me until after dinner, that I might experience no uncomfortable feelings during the repast at finding myself dining with lunatics. But I remembered, having been informed in Paris, that the southern provincialists were a peculiarly eccentric people, with a vast number of antiquated notions, and then, too, upon conversing with several members of the company, my apprehensions were immediately and fully dispelled. The dining-room itself, although perhaps sufficiently comfortable and of good dimensions, had nothing too much of elegance about it. For example, the floor was uncarpeted. In France, however, a carpet is frequently dispensed with. The windows, too, were without curtains. The shutters, being shut, were securely fashioned with iron bars applied diagonally, after the fashion of our ordinary shop shutters. The apartment, I observed, formed in itself a wing of the chateau, and thus the windows were on three sides of the parallelogram, the door being at the other. There were no less than ten windows in all. The table was superbly set out. It was loaded with plate, and more than loaded with delicacies. The profusion was absolutely barbaric. There were meats enough to have feasted the anakim. Never in all my life had I witnessed so lavish, so wasteful an expenditure of the good things of life. There seemed very little taste, however, in the arrangements— and my eyes, accustomed to quiet lights, were sadly offended by the prodigious glare of a multitude of wax candles, which, in silver candelabra, were deposited upon the table, and all about the room, wherever it was possible to find a place. There were several active servants in attendance, and, upon a large table at the farther end of the apartment, were seated seven or eight people with fiddles, fifes, trombones, and a drum. 
These fellows annoyed me very much at intervals during the repast by an infinite variety of noises, which were intended for music, and which appeared to afford much entertainment to all present, with the exception of myself. Upon the whole I could not help thinking that there was much of the bizarre about everything I saw. But then the world is made up of all kinds of persons, with all modes of thought, and all sorts of conventional customs. I had travelled, too, so much as to be quite the adept at the Nil Admirari, so I took my seat very coolly at the right hand of my host, and having an excellent appetite did justice to the good cheer set before me. The conversation in the meantime was spirited and general. The ladies, as usual, talked a great deal. I soon found that nearly all the company were well-educated, and my host was a world of good-humoured anecdote in himself. He seemed quite willing to speak of his position as superintendent of a maison de sang, and indeed the topic of lunacy was, much to my surprise, a favourite one with all present. A great many amusing stories were told, having reference to the whims of the patients. "'We had a fellow once,' said a fat little gentleman who sat at my right, "'a fellow that fancied himself a teapot.' And by the by, it is not especially singular how often this particular crotchet has entered the brain of the lunatic. There is scarcely an insane asylum in France which cannot supply a human teapot. Our gentleman was a Britannia-ware teapot, and was careful to polish himself every morning with buckskin and whiting. And then, said a tall man just opposite, we had here, not long ago, a person who had taken it into his head that he was a donkey, which, allegorically speaking, you would say, was quite true. He was troublesome patient, and we had much ado to keep him within bounds. For a long time he would eat nothing but thistles, but of this idea we soon cured him by insisting upon him eating nothing else. And then he was perpetually kicking his heels, so, so. Mr. de Cock. I will thank you to behave yourself, here interrupted an old lady who sat next to the speaker. Please keep your feet to yourself. You have spoiled my brocade. Is it necessary, pray, to illustrate a remark in so practical a style? Our friend here can surely comprehend you without all this. Upon my word, you are nearly as great a donkey as the poor unfortunate imagined himself. Your acting is very natural as I live. Mille pardon, mademoiselle, replied Monsieur de Coq, thus addressed. A thousand pardons. I had no intention of offending mademoiselle Laplace. Monsieur de Coq will do himself the honour of taking wine with you. Here Monsieur de Coq bowed low, kissed his hand with much ceremony, and took wine with mademoiselle Laplace. Allow me, mon ami, now said Monsieur Mallard, addressing myself, Allow me to send you a morsel of this veal à la Saint-Menahort. You will find it particularly fine. At this instant three sturdy waiters had just succeeded in depositing safely upon the table an enormous dish, or trencher, containing what I supposed to be the monstrum horrendum informe ingens qui lumen adeptum, a closer scrutiny assured me, however, that it was only a small calf roasted whole and set upon its knees with an apple in its mouth, as is the English fashion of dressing a hare. "'Thank you. Uh, no, 
I replied. To, to say the truth, I am not particularly partial to veal a la Saint. What is it? For I do not find that it altogether agrees with me. I will change my plate, however, and try some of the rabbit. There were several side dishes on the table containing what appeared to be the ordinary French rabbit, a very delicious morceau which I can recommend. "'Pierre!' cried the host. "'Change this gentleman's plate, and give him a side piece of this rabbit au chat.' "'This what?' said I. "'This rabbit au chat.' "'Why, thank you. Upon second thoughts, no, I will just help myself to some of the ham.' There is no knowing what one eats, thought I to myself, at the tables of these people of the province. I will have none of their rabbit o shot, and for that matter none of their cat o rabbit either. And then, said a cadaverous-looking personage near the foot of the table, taking up the thread of the conversation where it had been broken off, and then, among other oddities, we had a patient once upon a time— who very pertinaciously maintained himself to be a Cordova cheese, and went about with a knife in his hand, soliciting his friends to try a small slice from the middle of his leg. He was a great fool beyond doubt, interposed someone, but not to be compared with a certain individual whom we all know, with the exception of this strange gentleman. I mean, the man who took himself for a bottle of champagne— and always went off with a pop and a fizz in this fashion. Here, the speaker, very rudely, as I thought, put his right thumb in his left cheek, withdrew it with a sound resembling the popping of a cork, and then, by a dexterous movement of the tongue upon the teeth, created a sharp hissing and fizzing, which lasted for several minutes, in imitation of the frothing of champagne. This behavior, I saw plainly, was not very pleasing to Monsieur Maillard, but the gentleman said nothing, and the conversation was resumed by a very lean little man in a big wig. And then there was an ignoramus who mistook himself for a frog, which, by the way, he resembled in no little degree. I wish you could have seen him, sir. <laughs> Here the speaker addressed myself. It would have done your heart good to see the natural airs that he put on. Sir, if that man was not a frog, I can only observe that it is a pity he was not. <laughs> His croak thus <laughs> was the finest note in the world. <laughs> B flat. And when he put his elbows upon the table, uh, thus, uh, after taking a glass or two of wine, and uh, distended his mouth, uh, thus, and um, rolled up his eyes, uh, uh, thus, uh, and winked them with excessive rapidity, uh, thus, uh, why then, sir, I take it upon myself to say positively that you would have been lost in admiration for the genius of the man. <laughs> I... "'Have no doubt of it,' I said. "'And then,' said someone else, "'then there was Petit Gerard, who thought himself a pinch of snuff, "'and was truly distressed because he could not take himself "'between his own finger and thumb. "'And then there was Jules de Soulieres, "'who was a very singular genius indeed, "'and went mad with the idea that he was a pumpkin.' 
He persecuted the cook to make him up into pies, a thing which the cook indignantly refused to do. For my part, I am by no means sure that a pumpkin pie a la Desoulières would not have been very capital eating indeed. You astonish me, said I, and I looked inquisitively at Monsieur Maillard. Ha, 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 said that gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> Very good indeed. You must not be astonished, mon ami. Our friend here is a wit, a droll. You must not understand him to the letter. And then, said some other one of the party, then there was Buffon Legrand, another extraordinary personage in his way. He grew deranged through love and fancied himself possessed of two heads. One of these he maintained to be the head of Cicero. The other he imagined a composite one, being Demosthenes from the top of the forehead to the mouth, and Lord Brougham's from the mouth to the chin. It is not impossible that he was wrong, but he would have convinced you of his being in the right, for he was a man of great eloquence. He had an absolute passion for oratory, and could not refrain from display. For example, he used to leap upon the dinner table, thus, and... And here a friend at the side of the speaker put a hand upon his shoulder and whispered a few words in his ear, upon which he ceased talking with great suddenness and sank back within his chair. And then, said the friend who had whispered, then there was Boulard the teetotum. I call him the teetotum because, in fact, he was seized with the droll but not altogether irrational crotchet that he had been converted into a teetotum. You would have roared with laughter to see him spin. He would turn round upon one heel by the hour, in this manner. So... Here the friend, whom he had just interrupted by a whisper, performed an exactly similar office for himself. But then... cried the old lady at the top of her voice, your Monsieur Boulard was a madman, and a very silly madman at best. For who, allow me to ask you, ever heard of a human teetotum? The thing is absurd. Madame Joyeuse was a more sensible person, as you know. She had a crotchet, but it was instinct with common sense, and gave pleasure to all who had the honour of her acquaintance. She found, upon mature deliberation, that by some accident she had been turned into a chicken-cock, but as such she behaved with propriety. She flapped her wings with prodigious effect, so and so, and as for her crow, it was delicious. Cock-a-doodle-doo! Cock-a-doodle-doo! Madame Joyeuse, I will thank you to behave yourself, here interrupted our host very angrily. You can either conduct yourself as a lady should do, or you can quit the table forthwith. Take your choice. The lady, whom I was much astonished to hear addressed as Madame Joyeuse, after the description of Madame Joyeuse she had just given, blushed up to the eyebrows and seemed exceedingly abashed at the reproof. She hung down her head and said not a syllable in reply. But another and younger lady resumed the theme. It was my beautiful girl of the little parlor. 
Oh, Madame Joyeuse was a fool, she exclaimed. But there was really much sound sense, after all, in the opinion of Eugenie Solsefet. She was a very beautiful and painfully modest young lady, who thought the ordinary mode of habillement indecent, and wished to dress herself, always, by getting outside instead of inside of her clothes. It is a thing very easily done, after all. You have only to do so, and then so, 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 and then so, 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 and then so, so, and then... Mon Dieu! Mademoiselle sells a fit! Here cried a dozen voices at once. What are you about? Forbear! That is sufficient! We see very plainly how it is done. Hold! Hold! And several persons were already leaping from their seats to withhold Mademoiselle Salsafette from putting herself on a par with a Medician Venus. When the point was very effectually and suddenly accomplished by a series of loud screams or yells from some portion of the main body of the chateau. My nerves were very much affected indeed by these yells. But the rest of the company I really pitied. I never saw any set of reasonable people so thoroughly frightened in my life. They all grew as pale as so many corpses, and shrinking within their seats, sat quivering and gibbering with terror, and listening for a repetition of the sound. It came again, louder and seemingly nearer, and then a third time very loud, and then a fourth time with vigor evidently diminished. At this apparent dying away of the noise, the spirits of the company were immediately regained, and all was life and anecdote as before. I now ventured to inquire the cause of the disturbance. A mere bagtel, said Monsieur Maillard. We are used to these things and care really very little about them. The lunatics every now and then get up a howl in concert— one starting another, as is sometimes the case with a bevy of dogs at night. It occasionally happens, however, that the concerto yells are succeeded by a simultaneous effort at breaking loose, when, of course, some little danger is to be apprehended. And how many have you in charge? At present we have not more than ten altogether. Principally females, I presume? Oh, no! Every one of them men, and stout fellows, too, I can tell you. Indeed, I have always understood that the majority of lunatics were of the gentler sex. It is generally so, but not always. Some time ago there were about twenty-seven patients here, and of that number no less than eighteen were women. But lately matters have changed very much, as you see. Yes, have changed very much, as you see. Here interrupted the gentleman who had broken the shins of Mademoiselle Laplace. Yes, yes I've very much, as you see, chimed in the whole company at once. Hold your tongues, every one of you, said my host in a great rage, whereupon the whole company maintained a dead silence for nearly a minute. As for one lady, she obeyed Monsieur Maillard to the letter, and thrusting out her tongue, which— was an excessively long one, held it very resignedly with both hands until the end of the entertainment. 
"'And this gentlewoman,' said I to Monsieur Mellard, bending over and addressing him in a whisper, "'this good lady who has just spoken and who gives us the cock-a-doodle-dee-doo, she, I presume, is harmless, quite harmless, eh?' "'Harmless!' ejaculated he, in unfeigned surprise. "'Why, why, what do you mean?' "'Only slightly touched?' said I, touching my head. "'I take it for granted that she is not particularly not dangerously affected, eh?' "'Mon Dieu, what is it you imagine? "'This lady, my particular friend, Madame Joyeuse, "'is as absolutely sane as myself.' She has her little eccentricities, to be sure, but then you know all old women, all very old women, are more or less eccentric. To be sure, said I, to be sure. And then the rest of these ladies and gentlemen? Are my friends and keepers, interrupted Monsieur Maillard, drawing himself up with hauteur. My very good friends and assistants. What, all of them? I asked. "'The women and all?' "'Assuredly,' he said. "'We could not do at all without the women. "'They are the best lunatic nurses in the world. "'They have a way of their own, you know. "'Their bright eyes have a marvellous effect, "'something like the fascination of a snake, you know.' "'To be sure,' said I, "'to be sure. "'They behave a little odd, eh? "'They are a little queer, eh?' "'Don't you think so?' "'Odd! Queer! Why, do you really think so? "'We are not very prudish, to be sure, here in the South. "'Do pretty much as we please, enjoy life, and all that sort of thing, you know.' "'To be sure,' said I, to be sure. "'And then perhaps this Claude de Vougeot is a little heady, you know, a little strong. "'You understand, eh?' "'To be sure,' said I, to be sure. "'By the by,' "'Monsieur, did I understand you to say that the system you have adopted, in the place of the celebrated soothing system, was one of very rigorous severity?' "'By no means. Our confinement is necessarily close, but the treatment, the medical treatment, I mean, is rather agreeable to the patients than otherwise.' "'And the new system is one of your own invention?' Not altogether. Some portions of it are referable to Professor Tarr, of whom you have necessarily heard, and again there are modifications in my plan which I am happy to acknowledge as belonging of right to the celebrated Feather, with whom, if I mistake not, you have the honour of an intimate acquaintance. I am quite ashamed to confess, I replied, that I have never even heard the names of either gentleman before. "'Good heavens!' ejaculated my host, drawing back his chair abruptly and uplifting his hands. "'I surely did not hear you aright. You did not intend to say, eh, that you had never heard either of the learned Dr. Tarr or of the celebrated Professor Feather?' "'I am forced to acknowledge my ignorance,' I replied. "'But the truth should be held inviolate above all things.' Nevertheless, I feel humbled to the dust not to be acquainted with the works of these, no doubt, extraordinary men. I will seek out their writings forthwith, and pursue them with deliberate care. Monsieur Maillard, you have really, I must confess it, you have really made me ashamed of myself. 
and this was a fact. "'Say no more, my good young friend,' he said kindly, pressing my hand. "'Join me now in a glass of Sauternes.' We drank. The company followed our example without stint. They chatted, they jested, they laughed, they perpetrated a thousand absurdities. The fiddles shrieked, the drum rodidoed, the trombones bellowed like so many brazen bulls of Phalaris, and the whole scene, growing gradually worse and worse as the wines gained the ascendancy, became at length a sort of pandemonium in petto. In the meantime, Monsieur Mélard and myself, with some bottles of Sauterne and Vougeot between us, continued our conversation at the top of our voice. A word spoken in an ordinary key stood no more chance of being heard than the voice of a fish from the bottom of Niagara Falls. "'And, sir,' I said, screaming in his ear, "'you mentioned something before dinner about the danger incurred in the old system of soothing. How is that?' "'Yes,' he replied. "'There was occasionally very great danger indeed. "'There is no accounting for the caprices of madmen, "'and, in my opinion, as well as that of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, "'it is never safe to permit them to run at large unattended. "'A lunatic may be soothed, as it is called, for a time, "'but in the end he is very apt to become ostreparous.' His cunning, too, is proverbial and great. If he has a project in view, he conceals his design with a marvelous wisdom, and the dexterity with which he counterfeits sanity presents to the metaphysician one of the most singular problems in the study of the mind. When a madman appears thoroughly sane indeed, it is high time to put him in a straitjacket. But the danger, my dear sir, of which you are speaking in your own experience during your control of this house, have you had practical reason to think liberty hazardous in the case of a lunatic? Here? In my own experience? Why, I may say yes. For example, no very long while ago, a singular circumstance occurred in this very house. The soothing system, you know, was then in operation, and the patients were at large. They behaved remarkably well, especially so any one of sense might have known that some devilish scheme was brewing from that particular fact, that the fellows behaved so remarkably well. And sure enough, one fine morning the keepers found themselves pinioned hand and foot and thrown into the cells where they were attended, as if they were lunatics, by the lunatics themselves who had usurped the offices of the keepers. You don't tell me so. I never heard of anything so absurd in my life. Fact. It all came to pass by means of a stupid fellow, a lunatic, who by some means had taken it into his head that he had invented a better system of government than any ever heard of before. Of lunatic government, I mean. He wished to give his invention a trial, I suppose, and so he persuaded the rest of the patients to join him in a conspiracy for the overthrow of the reigning powers. And he really succeeded. No doubt of it. The keepers and kept were soon made to exchange places. 
Not that exactly, either, for the madmen had been free, but the keepers were shut up in cells forthwith, and treated, I am sorry to say, in a very cavalier manner. But I assume a, a counter-revolution was soon effected. The condition of things could not have long existed. The country people in the neighborhood, visitors coming to see the establishment, would have given the alarm. There you are out. The head rebel was too cunning for that. He admitted no visitors at all, with the exception one day of a very stupid-looking young gentleman, of whom he had no reason to be afraid. He let him in to see the place, just by way of variety, to, to have a little fun with him. As soon as he had gammoned him sufficiently, he let him out and sent him about his business. And how long, then, did the madman reign? Oh, a very long time indeed. A month, certainly. How much longer, I can't precisely say. In the meantime, the lunatics had a jolly season of it. That you may swear. They doffed their own shabby clothes and made free with the family wardrobe and jewels. The cellars of the chateau were well stocked with wine, and these madmen were just the devils to know how to drink it. They lived well, I can tell you. And the treatment? What was the peculiar species of treatment which the leader of the rebels put into operation? Why, as for that, a madman is not necessarily a fool, as I have already observed, and it is my honest opinion that his treatment was a much better treatment than that which it superseded. It was a very capital system indeed, simple, neat, no trouble at all. In fact, it was delicious it was. Here my host's observations were cut short by another series of yells, of the same character as those which had previously disconcerted us. This time, however, they seemed to proceed from persons rapidly approaching. "'Gracious heavens!' I ejaculated. "'The lunatics have most undoubtedly broken loose!' "'I very much fear it is so,' replied Monsieur Maillard, now becoming excessively pale." He had scarcely finished the sentence before loud shouts and imprecations were heard beneath the windows, and immediately afterward it became evident that some persons outside were endeavoring to gain entrance into the room. The door was beaten with what appeared to be a sledgehammer, and the shutters were wrenched and shaken with prodigious violence. A scene of the most terrible confusion ensued. Monsieur Maillard, to my excessive astonishment, threw himself under the sideboard. I had expected more resolution at his hands. The members of the orchestra, who for the last fifteen minutes had been seemingly too much intoxicated to do duty, now sprang all at once to their feet and to their instruments, and, scrabbling upon their table, broke out with one accord into Yankee Doodle, which they performed, if not exactly in tune, at least with an energy superhuman during the whole of the uproar. Meantime, upon the main dining table among the bottles and glasses, leaped the gentleman who, with such difficulty, had been restrained from leaping there before. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. As soon as he I fairly settled himself, Caesar, he commenced an oration which, no doubt, was a very capital one, if it could only have been heard. 
At the same moment, the man with the teetotum predilection set himself to spinning around the apartment with immense energy and with arms outstretched at right angles with his body, so that he had all the air of a teetotum, in fact, and knocked everybody down that happened to get in his way. And now, too, hearing an incredible popping and fizzing of champagne, I discovered at length that it proceeded from the person who performed the bottle of that delicate drink during dinner. And then again, the frogman croaked away as if the salvation of his soul depended upon every note that he uttered. And in the midst of all this, the continuous braying of a donkey arose over all. As for my old friend, Madame Joyeuse, I really could have wept for the poor lady as she appeared so terribly perplexed. All she did, however, was to stand up in a corner by the fireplace and sing out incessantly at the top of her voice, And now came the climax, the catastrophe of the drama. As no resistance beyond whooping and yelling and cockadoodling was offered to the encroachments of the party without, the ten windows were very speedily and almost simultaneously broken in. But I shall never forget the emotions of wonder and horror with which I gazed when, leaping through these windows and down among us Pele Mele, fighting, stamping, scratching, and howling, there rushed a perfect armor of what I took to be chimpanzees, orangutans, or big black baboons of the Cape of Good Hope. I received a terrible beating, after which I rolled under a sofa and lay still. After lying there some fifteen minutes, during which time I listened with all my ears to what was going on in the room, I came to some satisfactory denouement of this tragedy. Monsieur Mellard, it appeared, in giving me the account of the lunatic who had excited his fellows to rebellion, had been merely relating his own exploits. This gentleman had indeed some two or three years before been the superintendent of the establishment, but grew crazy himself, and so became a patient. This fact was unknown to the travelling companion who introduced me. The keepers— ten in number, having been suddenly overpowered, were first well-tarred, then carefully feathered, and then shut up in the underground cells. They had been so imprisoned for more than a month, during which period Monsieur Mellard had generously allowed them not only the tar and feathers, which constituted his system, but some bread and abundance of water. The latter was pumped on them daily. At length, one, escaping through a sewer, gave freedom to all the rest. The soothing system, with important modifications, had been resumed at the chateau. Yet I cannot help agreeing with Monsieur Maillard that his own treatment was a very capital one of its kind. As he justly observed, it was simple, neat, and gave no trouble at all, not the least. I have only to add that, although I have searched every library in Europe for the works of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, I have, up to the present day, utterly failed in my endeavors at procuring an edition.
The cast of characters for this story were Barry Hayworth as Mr. DeCock, who thought himself to be a donkey, and also Buffon Legrand, <laughs> who was the orator with two heads. Uh, Bria Burton played, I think it was the same character, but she was identified as both Madame Laplace and Madame Jayus. But again, I think it was written to be one character as the old lady who thought she was a rooster. <laughs> Had Gino Moretto play the character who thought he was a bottle of champagne. Big Anklevich paid the gentleman who thought he was a frog. Uh, Rish Outfield played Jules de Soliers, who thought he was a pumpkin. And he played uh, Boulard, who thought he was a teetotum. <laughs> uh, Julie Holverson played Eugene Salsafet, who did a strip tease for everybody. And then I, myself, Marshall Latham, played uh, the fat man, who thought he was a teapot. And the man who thought he was a Cordova cheese. And also Petite Gaylard, who thought he was a pinch of snuff. And of course, headlining the entire project, we have Dave Robison as the narrator of the story. And also Monsieur Millard. Uh, thank you, Dave. You are a tour de force. And uh, thank you to everybody else who lend, who lended their voices uh, to this production. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of fun to get those voices in there. Some of you have been waiting years, uh, perhaps decades, to hear your voice <laughs> in this production. And I'm very grateful for your patience. And hopefully you feel that it was worth it. <laughs> Though I doubt it. This is a very interesting story. In some ways, uh, it is spooky. It is um, a horror piece in that what if the mental patients took over the asylum? Uh, what would they do? Now, but, but then again, in this story, it, they're pretty harmless, really. Um, they don't kill anybody. They don't, well, I guess they do tar and feather the master and the keepers of the asylum and the doctors. Um, so yeah, they do abuse them <laughs> quite a bit and pen them up. But Millard is a very gracious host to uh, this visitor to the asylum. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think if I was touring the French countryside, I don't think I would just say, Hey, you know what? I want to go visit the asylum. And, uh, see what it's like there <laughs> uh, so that's interesting but you know so there this could have been a horror story but i really feel that it's a it's a parody almost or a comedy but i to say that it's a parody you know i couldn't tell you what it's a parody of um but it's definitely interesting to have all of these characters with all of these uh strange crotchets or uh, think themselves to be all these crazy things, even though they're presenting it as other people, or that they're explaining patients that were once there, but of course they're explaining um, who they are. And it's interesting how that plays out, how you know it becomes obvious that there's more going on here 
then is seen that you know the the music and the menu <laughs> and then definitely the conversation gets stranger and stranger and then uh towards the end you know Millard starts to talk about this inmate that took over the asylum and of course he's he's bragging on his own accomplishment there but i i think it's really funny where he starts talking about this uh stupid guy that comes comes around that wants to to visit the asylum and he's talking about the narrator of the story yeah it's just i i it's hard to categorize this i guess it's kind of a mystery as well you you figure out clues along the way of of what's really going on at this asylum uh, he does have a little sum up thing at the end i guess similar to what we had with the gold bug where the last half of the story was <laughs> going on and on explaining all of the details of how they found the treasure and that that kind of thing there was a movie that was made in 2014 titled Stonehurst Asylum uh, which stars Ben Kingsley oh and I guess Michael Caine was in there as well and Brendan Gleeson and Kate Beckinsale wow I guess I don't remember <laughs> I, I definitely remember Ben Kingsley he he plays the title role um, and it's loosely based on this story uh, it's, it's good that they changed the title <laughs> for the movie because it, it's kind of a, a farcical title as well you know, Dr. Tar and Professor Feather, or Feather, I guess. I I pronounce it Feather. <laughs> I don't know why. But, uh, well, a bird feather, I pronounce. But when I think of a professor, you would say Professor Feather. But I don't know. But it is kind of a silly title for a story. You know, and I guess it ties into they did Tar and Feather, the poor keepers and doctors who were taking care of the patients. And uh, so I guess that was the tar and the feather were the authors of this new treatment that Millard was uh, was instituting here at the asylum. I, I don't think it's, I mean, it's the same premise is there for the movie where the inmates, where the patients take over the asylum. But it, it's definitely not a comedy. It's a drama or a thriller. And it's done pretty well. I really liked the movie. And it's probably better application of the premise than the actual story here by Poe. But yeah, it, you, you can't say that it's not an interesting story. And, it, and I think it is quite fun to hear it in audio. Because <laughs> you have all these crazy characters and, and acting out their crotchets. <laughs> or their idiosyncrasies or whatever. Yeah, so I'm glad I was able to get that I still had some of these... Uh, lines from people that I had asked years ago and was able to get others to recreate their lines that they had done years ago and uh, it's fun to put this together like I said I I didn't put as much effort into the production I had a lot more musical cues going on I had a lot more like the stuff with the music that was being played at the dinner and throughout the ending with the ginky doodle dandy at the end and and other things like that i would i had found uh, or tried to find things that represented 
like a bad orchestra and uh, things like that. And so, like I said, I had put a lot more effort into the production of it. But I don't know, that probably distracted a lot from the actual story. Or maybe doing this minimalist with, with the different voice actors and some few sound effects in there to, to bring about the effects of the story. This, this is probably better than what I had done before. I had just spent so much time with that production previously. And it, it was a lot different. I didn't have Dave Robison in that early production. And I thought about getting somebody else to play Millard for this production. But, you know, Dave put so much effort into it and did such a great job with it. that, uh, And I liked his portrayal of both the narrator and Millard uh, and thought they were distinct enough that uh, I didn't need to get another voice actor for that. But like I said, it was a lot of fun to to put everybody else in there with their cock-a-doodle-doos and their champagne popping and uh, fizzing and all that kind of stuff. I, I hope you enjoyed this as well. Again, it's, it's another story by Poe that most people probably have not heard only if they're Poe fans and, and have read several of his stories. But it's not something you're going to find um, in the mainstream. You're going to have to dig deep to get to the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. You know, even that title, I think, would would push people away. They're like, well, that's a weird title. Maybe not, maybe not. But uh, anyway, th- this was a long story. So I should probably let you get on your way. <laughs> but I'm glad that I was finally able to present this story on the podcast. And again, thank everybody for all of their uh, talent and generosity in uh, helping me out with this. If you'd like to contact me um, about this episode or any other episode of the podcast or various things that show up here, uh, you can email me at journeyintopodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash journeyinto. And uh, yeah, check out what I have there. Uh, you definitely get things earlier on the Patreon. And uh, I'd like to try to throw some extra things in there. I'm going to try to sneak one more story in before the end of January. That will not be by Edgar Allan Poe. It'll, it'll be from me. But I wanted to get it in before the Superhero Marathon <laughs> starts up in February. So I'll be trying to get that out to you before all that starts. So I wish you the best. Uh, stay safe out there. And journey on. The Journey Into podcast is produced under Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means that you are encouraged to share this podcast with as many people as you would like. Uh, But please don't change it or sell it. And let people know where you got it from. I think my fridge door is open. It's beeping. Hold on a sec.
to death. So please give me a minute to catch my breath. Isn't there something else? Okay, there we go. Just gotta do these because lots of people do them, I guess. She's probably used to my son making weird noises, so that's probably not going to phase her. Ha! Yes, ooh, ooh. Righto. Good show. Come now. <laughs> Come on. Oh, yes. I've changed very much, as you see. It's the worst thing ever, Marshall. Maybe I can do two ways, just in case you don't want English accent in it since... Is Poe, who is Baltimorean, if that's a thing. No, I saw. Stop, madame. Hey, oh, hey, stop it. I take it upon myself to say positively that. You would have been lost in admiration of the genius of the man. (laughs) We had a fellow here once, said a fat little gentleman who sat at my right, a fellow that fancied himself a teapot. And by the way, is it not especially singular how often this particular crochet has entered the brain of the lunatic? There is scarcely an insane asylum in France which cannot supply a human teapot. Our gentleman was a Britannia-ware teapot, and was careful to polish himself every morning with buckskin and whiting. (laughs) And then, said a tall man just opposite, We had here not long ago a person who had taken it into his head that he was a donkey, which, allegorically speaking, you will say, is quite true. He was a troublesome patient, and we had much ado to keep him within bounds. For a long time he would eat nothing but thistles. But of this idea we soon cured him by insisting upon his eating nothing else. Then he was perpetually kicking out his heels so... So, Mr. DeCock, I will thank you to behave yourself, here interrupted an old lady who sat next to the speaker. Please keep your feet to yourself. You have spoiled my brocade. Is it necessary, pray, to illustrate a remark in so practical a style? Our friend here can surely comprehend you without all this. Upon my word, you are nearly as great a donkey as the poor unfortunate imagined himself. You're acting a very natural as I live. Mille pardon, mademoiselle, replied Monsieur de Coq, thus addressed. A thousand pardons. I had no intention of offending, mademoiselle Leplace. Monsieur de Coq will do himself the honor of taking wine with you. And then, said a cadaverous-looking personage near the foot of the table, taking up the thread of the conversation where it had been broken off, 
And then, among other oddities, we had a patient once upon a time who very pertinaciously maintained himself to be a Cordova cheese and went about with a knife in his hand soliciting his friends to try a small slice from the middle of his leg. He was a great fool beyond doubt, interposed someone, but not to be compared with a certain individual whom we all know, with the exception of this strange gentleman. I, I mean the man who took himself for a bottle of champagne, and always went off with a pop and a fizz in this fashion. And the conversation was resumed by a very lean little man in a big wig. And then there was an ignoramus, said he, who mistook himself for a frog, which, by the way, he resembled in no little degree. I wish you could have seen him, sir. Here the speaker addressed myself. It would have done your heart good to see the natural airs that he put on. Sir, if that man was not a frog, I can only observe that it is a pity he was not. His croak thus, was the finest note in the world, B-flat, and when he put his elbows upon the table thus, after taking a glass or two of wine, and distended his mouth thus, and rolled up his eyes thus, and winked them with excessive rapidity thus. Why then, sir, I take it upon myself to say positively that you would have been lost in admiration of the genius of the man. I have no doubt of it, I said. And then, said someone else, then there was Petit Gaillard, who thought himself a pinch of snuff, and was truly distressed, because he could not take himself between his own finger and thumb. <laughs> and then there was Jules de Soulier, who was a very singular genius indeed, and went mad with the idea that he was a pumpkin. He persecuted the cook to make him up into pies, a thing which the cook indignantly refused to do. For my part, I am no means sure that a pumpkin pie a la de Soulier would not have been very capital eating indeed. And then, said some other one of the party, there was Buffon le Grand, another extraordinary personage in his way. He grew deranged through love, and fancied himself possessed of two heads. One of these he maintained to be the head of Cicero, the other he imagined a composite one, being Demosthenes from the top of the forehead to the mouth, and Lord Brougham's from the mouth to the chin. It is not impossible that he was wrong, but he would have convinced you of his being in the right, for he was a man of great eloquences. He had an absolute passion for oratory, and would not refrain from display— for example, he used to leap upon the dinner-table thus, and, and, and then, said the friend who had whispered, there was Boulard, the teetotum. I call him the teetotum, because, in fact, he was seized with the droll but not altogether irrational crochet that he had been converted into a teetotum. You would have roared with laughter to see him spin. He would turn around upon one heel by the hour in this manner. So, here the friend whom he had just interrupted by a whisper performed an exactly similar office for himself. But then, 
cried the old lady at the top of her voice. Your Monsieur Boulard was a madman, and a very silly madman at best. For who, allow me to ask you, ever heard of a human teetotum? The thing is absurd. Madame Joyeuse was a more sensible person, as you know. She had a crochet, but it was instinct with common sense, and gave pleasure to all who had the honor of her acquaintance. She found, upon mature deliberation, that, by some accident, she had been turned into a chicken-cock. But as such, she behaved with propriety. She flapped her wings with prodigious effect. So, so, and as for her crow, it was delicious. Cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. But another and younger lady resumed the theme. It was my beautiful girl of the little parlor. Oh, Madame Joyeuse was a fool, she exclaimed. But there was really much sound sense, after all, in the opinion of Eugenie Salsafet. She was a very beautiful and painfully modest young lady, who thought the ordinary mode of habiliment indecent, and wished to dress herself always by getting outside instead of inside of her clothes. It was a thing very easily done, after all. You only have to do so, and then so, 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 and then so, 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 and then so, so, and then, mon dieu, mademoiselle Salsafette, here cried a dozen voices at once. What are you about? Forbear, that is sufficient. We see very plainly how it is done. Hold, hold, 